It's the month of March. The madness is about to begin or has begun, depending on whether or not you count conference tournaments. Some of us are, are thrilled with the prospect of nonstop college basketball, and the rest of us would like to fast forward to the end of the madness. Uh, either way, our friends, our family, and fellow church members know how we feel. Others know who we are rooting for. They, they know our team. They will eventually know who we will you know, maybe pick to win the tournament. They will know who we are emotionally invested in. And they will likely make fun of us for picking a team that can't stop or help but choke every year. Or... Um, because we're not really a fan of sports or college basketball, our friends and family and, and fellow church members know that we're rooting for everyone to lose, if that were a possibility. It's interesting, the things that, that people know about us, isn't it? Favorite basketball teams, uh, signature colors, uh, beloved authors, preferred coffee shops, and whether you like March Madness or despise it with a passion of 10,000 burning suns. You know, these little things people know about us, right? Uh, others, they, they, they know these little things about us, but, but do they know the big things about us, really? The, the things that, that really, in all actuality, shape our lives. Do others know that you're here this morning? Do others know that you praise God? Do others know why you praise God? Do others know that, that really, above any basketball team or hobby, that God is your favorite, your signature, your beloved, your preferred? If it, if it were only as easy to tell others about God as it is to tell others about how we feel about something as eternally insignificant as March Madness. Don't, don't you just wish that sharing your true passion with others could be as easy as telling them about how you feel about the madness. If we step back and, and think about our evangelistic fears, maybe, maybe we're often more consumed by our comfort than by the greatness of God's love, mercy, and grace. Maybe if we were overcome by the staggering truth that God forgives us of all of our iniquities, it would be easier to invite others into the praise of God. Psalm 103 invites us to consider the greatness of God's love, mercy, and grace. More than that, Psalm 103 challenges us to invite others to consider the greatness of God's love, mercy, and grace. And it's my prayer that as we, as we open God's Word this morning, we'll be helped in our praise of God. And that we would be encouraged to invite others to come and praise God. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn your Bibles to Psalm 103. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 502. 502. Psalm 103 comes on the heels of Psalm 102. The preceding Psalm, Psalm 102, lamented the horrors of the exile. The exile is that, that period in Israel's history where, where the people of Israel were removed from the promised land of Canaan for their sin. Like Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden for their sin. 
the people of Israel had turned their back on God. They had violated the law of God. They had agreed to keep the law of God. And as long as they did, they had the privilege of living in the promised land of Canaan. Sadly, the people of Israel violated the law of God over and over and over again. And God removed them from the land just as He promised He would all the way back in Deuteronomy and even Leviticus. The curses for disobedience to the covenant had fallen upon Israel. And Psalm 102, the psalm that precedes our psalm, lamented Israel's plight in exile. Psalm 102 called for the people of Israel to pour out their hearts to the Lord and place their hope in Him for restoration. And the divinely inspired compilers of the psalms likely placed Psalm 103, a psalm of David, after Psalm 102 because Psalm 103 announces why God will restore His people. God will, because of His great love for His people, because of the immensity of His mercy and the amazing nature of His grace, He will forgive all of their sin. This is why God's people bless Him. This is why we praise Him. That's why we thank Him. Psalm 103, as you can see from the opening and closing words of the psalm, is a psalm of blessing. It begins with one man, and as praises want to do, a chorus of praise grows and expands from David to Israel, then to the whole creation. As we read Psalm 103, see if you can see how this chorus of blessing grows from one to many. Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant, and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103 is a chorus of blessing growing from one to many. In verses 1 to 5, we hear David's call to praise. Then in verses 6 to 18, we hear Israel's call to praise. And finally, in verses 19 to 22, we hear creation's call to praise. If you're taking notes, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, David's call to praise. And let's read verses 1 to 5 again. And notice, as I read them, notice how David takes his soul in hand and he preaches to himself. He calls himself to praise. Psalm 103, beginning there in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here, David calls himself to praise Yahweh. That's what those capital, capital letters L-O-R-D communicate, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Bless Yahweh, David says to himself. Preaching to his soul, David calls for everything that is within him to praise Yahweh. This is good and right, right? But we ought to praise God with all that we have and all that we are. Why? We, we ought to praise God with all that is within us because God has made all of us and all that is within us. He made everything about us. He sustains us with life and breath. We owe everything to Him and He ought to have everything from us. We ought to praise God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some of you are wondering, does this mean I'm allowed to raise my hands when I sing praise to God? Of course you are. If, if raising your hands helps you to give praise to God with all that you are, then raise your hands. If your heart is lifted up without your hands being lifted up, that's fine too. We have great freedom in our expression of worship. We should praise God with all that is within us. The only thing that constrains us in our worship is the Word of God and love. We give ourselves in love to God. And we worship according to His Word. And as we do, we're, we're mindful and willing to prefer and do what would be most loving for those around us. Give God praise with all that is within you. When we have given God praise with all that is within us, we have but done our duty. But stop and think about this, friends. The praise of Yahweh is not automatic. We must be called to praise. We must, like David, call ourselves to praise God. In fact, this is why we begin our services with a, what, a scriptural call to worship. Christian, you know personally, individually, you know that praise is not automatic. Some of us here this morning struggled to get out of bed. Uh, some of us have bowed our heads in prayer, but our hearts and minds were far from the things of God and what we were praying about together. Some of us have sung the words on the page of the insert or hymnal. But was it really praise? The praise of God involves our hearts and whole selves. It's not automatic. So when we step into praise God, we must remember who God is. 
Praise is what is rightly owed to our holy God. Don't pass over that phrase there in verse 1 too quickly. Bless His holy name. God is holy. This is what the seraphim sang in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In the words of one Puritan minister, God is holy. All holy. Only holy. Altogether holy. And always holy. God is holy. He is holy in all of His attributes. But what does it mean for God to be holy? God's holiness is an essential attribute of His character and being. He cannot be God without being the holy God. By itself, the word holy means set apart. In particular, it has an ethical dimension. God is completely set apart from sin, from wickedness and evil. Sin is not in His person, and it cannot even be in His presence. God is holy in all that He is, and holy in all that He does. God is holy in thought, and in word, and in deed. And when we reflect on God's holiness, we come to see that He is not like us. And indeed, we are not like Him. There is no one like Him. He is holy. This is who David is calling himself to praise, the holy God. When you think of God, do you think of Him as holy? And do you think of Him as holy as He defines holy? Do you recognize that He cannot permit sin in His presence? Does that reality that God is holy make you fearful or faithful? Does it give you pause or lead you to praise? It was part of David's praise because of what we find there in verses 2 through 5. An exemplary list of all the benefits of God. In verse 2, David calls himself to remember and not forget all of God's benefits. The call to remember God and His covenant is strewn throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the ideas of remembering and forgetting are, are far more comprehensive than our kind of contemporary usage of the words. Remembering and forgetting are often ideas that are connected to covenant faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses, he alerted the people of Israel to the, of the danger of forgetfulness. How might the people of Israel be forgetful of, of God? Well, the amazing bounty of the promised land, the fullness of God's blessings in the land, the enjoyment that they would receive from the land might lead them to forget God and abandon their covenant. The one who had given them these wonderful gifts. The gifts were meant to drive them to God, not to cause them to forget God. And yet, that's exactly what they did. They forgot God and abandoned the covenant. They forgot Yahweh. But who is Yahweh? He is the God who remains faithful when His people are faithless. He is the God who remembers His covenant when His people forget. When David preaches to himself to remember all of God's benefits, he, he goes on to outline them in verses 3 through 5. And what are the, the blessed benefits of being loved by God? Well, being forgiven of all your iniquities, healed of all your diseases, being redeemed, crowned with steadfast love and mercy, and being satisfied. Oh, dear Christian, do not forget Jesus. Do not forget the one who forgives. Do not forget all of the benefits that flow from being united to Jesus in faith. Justification, adoption, sanctification, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, and perseverance unto the end. 
Do not forget Jesus, for He is your life. He is the only benefit that you need. He is the benefit from which all other eternal benefits flow. There is something we need to recognize about this poetic description of God's benefits there in verses 3 through 5. These descriptors of God's benefits are, are merely different treasures in the same mine. David is here reminding himself of the, the total nature of his salvation and redemption. Salvation is related to body and soul. Having called himself to give praise, he is now in the midst of it, kind of drilling down and mining the riches of salvation. If we were to pause and think about our, the riches of our salvation, we ought to be driven to praise. Brothers and sisters, let's take this truth in. God forgives all of our iniquities. Now, it would be astounding, wouldn't it, if God forgave just one of us, or, or all of us, of just one sin. But that's not how He deals with His people. He takes each individual member of His covenant community and family and forgives not just one of their sins, but all of their sins. And multiply that by how many of God's people there are. He deals so graciously with His people. God forgives all of our iniquities. God forgave David of all of his sins, great and small. God forgave David of his passivity and his abdication of his responsibility. And God forgave David of his adultery and murder. We rejoice in this good news that we've sung this morning. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but what? But the, the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Or to use the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God forgives all of our sins, our worst sins, our darkest sins, and our most secret sins. This leads us to praise God and to turn away from sin. Nothing but the forgiveness of God can turn our hearts and lives to the praise of God and the pursuit of righteousness. Jesus heals all of our diseases. Sometimes He is pleased to heal our physical diseases in this life, but other times He's not. But we do know that in this life he, he heals our disease of sin as we place our faith in Him. And in the life to come, our bodies will not know physical disease and infirmity. One day, on the last day, Jesus really will heal all of our diseases. Jesus redeems us from the pit. He saves us from the grave of eternal damnation. Jesus crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Through our faith union with Jesus, we are brought into the love of God and experience the mercy of God so that we are not punished as our sins deserve. This is how God satisfies us with Himself and salvation in His Son. This gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. As Charles Spurgeon said, As well might the sea be thought to be full or its billows to be still, as the heart of man be thought to be satisfied. It is a spiritual blessing, a divine grace that comes from the great satisfying God, the God who is Himself all-sufficient, the only one who can be sufficient to fill the human heart 
Every Christian needs his soul restored, refreshed, reinvigorated because of the ordinary wear and tear that operate on the spiritual life, as well as on every other form of life. Though we may have neglected much communion with Christ and so have lost our vigor, He can give it all back. Our God can satisfy us with the fullness of His character and person and love. Friends, brothers and sisters, God really can satisfy our souls. He will, as we call ourselves into deeper, deeper and deeper into Christ through God's means of grace. We've seen David call, David's call to praise. And now we turn to consider our second point, Israel's call to praise. Here we're looking at verses 6 to 18 in greater detail. And as we read these verses, note how God has acted in Israel's history. And note the call to keep God's covenant. Begin reading there in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. In verse 6, David begins to enlarge the company of those who praise Yahweh. Here he seeks to remind the people of God that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Well, who are those who are oppressed? These words likely look back to the people of Israel languishing in slavery under Pharaoh, under Pharaoh's heavy hand. And it's as if David is saying, God knows and sees the oppression of His people. When David calls to mind Yahweh's ways through Moses and his mighty acts, he's likely bringing into view the, the plagues that Yahweh poured out to release Israel from bondage in Egypt. The oppressed David has in mind are God's people. As you'll recall, this psalm, as it was collected and compiled into the Psalter, it would have been read by Israelites languishing in exile. These would have been comforting words for the people in exile because they would have been encouraged to hope that just as God has acted for His people in the past, the past oppressed people of Israel in slavery, so He will act for His oppressed people in exile in the present. Because David is calling the people of Israel to, to praise God, he's calling them to set their attention on God and His great character. You see there, verse 8, we have a, actually a recapitulation of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where the Lord, He passed before Moses and revealed His character, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34 is a fascinating passage. Because there the exalted Lord of the universe descends and proclaims His name. But remember what has just happened in the Exodus narrative. 
The people of Israel have broken God's commands. They have worshipped idols. The tablets of stone upon which the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God have been shattered. And after Moses intercedes for the people of Israel, God announces His name. In that dramatic revelation, no description of what God looks like is given. Our attention is not drawn to the glimpse of glory that Moses sees trailing off the back of God. Instead, Moses there and David here draws our attention to who this Lord of the universe is in His person. He is the Supreme Lord. He is a merciful and gracious God. A God who is compassionate and shows undeserved favor. Israel deserves to be punished, but they receive mercy and grace. They receive mercy and grace not because Moses offered a good prayer, but because this is who Yahweh is. Yahweh is mercy and grace. Yahweh is love. His forgiveness and compassion flow from His character. We receive God's mercy and grace not because we've offered the right prayer or done the right works of penance. We receive mercy and grace because God has freely chosen to extend His mercy and grace to us. He has been pleased to bestow upon us His unmerited favor. Yahweh truly is a God who is slow to anger, long-suffering, and patient. Just think of how you engaged with God this past week. Think of how patient He was with you in your sin and your stumbling through this life. And think of how He carried you and walked with you in patience and love. In God, there is unending love and commitment. As long as there a covenant is a covenant between Himself and His people, He will love His people and remain committed to them. This is the God that David is calling the people of Israel to praise. And this is the God that we are called to praise. For He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 9 ought to hold for us as much comfort for us, if, if not more, than it did for those Israelites languishing in exile, singing this song. The saints in that era were left to wonder, will our exile ever come to an end? How long must we suffer in this sin-filled world? Verse 9, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. The Scriptures do teach us that our God is a Father who disciplines those He loves. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 12. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit and it displeases our Father. Our sin righteously and rightly angers Him. Still, just as an earthly father does not disown his disobedient children, so our Heavenly Father does not disown us. Yes, we wound our relationship with our Father, but He never stops loving us. He chides us to correct us, and produce within us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But this is all for our good. And it is all for a limited time. He will not always chide. He will not be angry forever. What is more, He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. Christian, if God were to deal with you according to what your sins deserve you would have to face the punishment that Jesus faced, the eternal wrath of God. You could not bear it, and you don't have to bear it. 
Since God has poured out His wrath on Jesus Christ for you, since Jesus has been your substitute, since Jesus has stood in your place, you will not be paid the wages of your sin. Notice, notice the turn that is taking place in this psalm. We have been and are being told of God's character. He is gracious and forgiving. And as the psalm progresses, we're not just told who God is, but we're also being told what God does. In verses 11 through 14, we are continuing the transition from God's attributes to God's action. We have been told that Yahweh is the kind of God that is gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving. And here we're being told that God is making His love and grace and mercy known to us. In these verses, David, he draws analogy after analogy to communicate to us the greatness of God's love and mercy and forgiveness toward those who fear Him. We're told to, to look at the heavens... And understand that God's love is higher and greater than the farthest star that we can see. According to conservative estimates, with our own eyes, we can see stars that are about 4,700 light years away. God's love is greater than that. His love is infinite. His love is vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. Then David says, now, think about how far the east is from the west. That is how far God has removed our transgressions from us. The east and the west, they they never meet. Remember, these are are poetic images meant to communicate to us the, the greatness of God's love and forgiveness toward His people. Perhaps these expressions ought to call to our minds Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. There, Paul prayed this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, and what do we need to comprehend? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is what we need to comprehend. This is what we need to grasp. That God's love and forgiveness are greater than we have dared to imagine. Some of the most striking images of this psalm may be found there in verses 13 and 14. Here David teaches us about God's action toward us through the analogy of a tender, merciful, and compassionate father. Every compassionate father who has ever seen his child in trouble runs to him and seeks to rescue him. Some fathers in this congregation have watched their children walk. They've been there to catch them before they fall. And after they have fallen, they have been there to scoop them up and to to comfort them and sing to them and hold them and pray for them. We know that they're, they're weak and they're sore and they're bruised. We know our children aren't invincible but breakable, so we handle them with care because we love them. The best and most tender earthly father is but a dim picture. It is but a shadow of our heavenly father. He knows our frame. He made our frame. He knit us together in our mother's womb. Every baby inside a mother's belly is the great handiwork of God. To my brothers and sisters who are weary and heavy laden, to those of you who feel brittle 
and ready to break? Take comfort from verse 14. Draw comfort from the truth that God knows our frame, that He remembers that we are dust. If it is God's pleasure to wound you, then you must believe that He thinks it's necessary in order to heal you. Every pain has purpose, even when we can't see it. Don't believe the lie of the evil one. Don't believe the lie of Satan who says that God neither knows nor remembers you. God, through the mouth of His servant David, in Psalm 103, verse 14, tells us otherwise. He knows, and He remembers us. In the words of John Flavel, As God did not at first choose you because you were so high, so He will not forsake you because you are so low. He remembers. He knows. In verses 15 to 18, David, then he sets up this fascinating contrast. The contrast is between the length of man's days on earth and the length of God's love for His people. Though man's days on this fallen earth are limited, God's love for His people is unlimited. On this earth, man springs up like, like grass and then is cut down. On this earth, man grows up like a, a flower, but eventually he withers and falls and fades away. God's love is not like that. God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. He has always loved His people and He will always love His people. He can't stop loving His people. Consider these words from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-6, through 6, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. See, in verses 15 to 18, man's passing life is contrasted with God's permanent love. Christians are a peculiar people. We are a peculiar people for, for many reasons, but one of our most pronounced peculiarities is that we talk about death. That's what Psalm 103 is talking about here. We as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we talk about death not because we delight in the subject, but because the Bible speaks of it honestly. Our world wishes to push death to the fringes of our minds and preferably, if possible, out of our minds. But the Scriptures constantly call us to consider our end. It is the way of wisdom to consider our end. And when believers are forced to consider our end, when we are faced the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? We answer in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but that I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. We live for Him because Jesus lived and died for us. Friends, we will have an end. We will either die, as Psalm 103 reminds us, or Jesus will return 
and renew the created order into the new heavens and the new earth. Psalm 103 grants God's people the hope that having been forgiven of all of our sins, that we are received by Him. And yet, it is here that we need to stop and consider some of the hard things that Psalm 103 actually says. Verses 16 to 18 are Israel's call to praise. They are the call to praise for God's peculiar people. They are promises of forgiveness to a particular people. You can see that if you only look at just a few phrases. Look at, the, look at verse 11 again. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. Now look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. And now the first half of verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. You see, Psalm 103 teaches us, and the Bible teaches us, that God's love, mercy, and forgiveness is for those who fear Him. What does that mean? It does not mean that God's love, mercy, and forgiveness are for those who are afraid of Him. No, it means that God's love, mercy, and forgiveness are for those who revere Him. Those who honor Him, who adore Him, who worship Him, who praise Him, who place their faith in Him. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't come to praise God with all of your heart, if you haven't given to Him your whole life, if you don't fear Him, then the sad and sobering news is that God's love, mercy, and forgiveness do not at the present belong to you. But the good news is that God's love, mercy, and forgiveness are available to you in Christ Jesus today, right now. These promises of Psalm 103, the promises of God's eternal, unending, forgiving, and faithful love are offered to you in Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, tells us this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The truth is, is that you and I and everyone here this morning have sinned against God. We have decided, like Adam and Eve, like Israel, we've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And we've made up our own laws and rules. We've rejected God's rules. We've rejected His commandments. We've rejected His way. And in doing so, we've rejected Him. The real shame and sham is that we haven't even been able to live up to the rules that we've made for ourselves. We've set our standard up below God's standard. And we haven't even been able to live up to that. How many times have we been disappointed in ourselves? Because of Israel's sin, because of their failure to keep God's covenant and failure to remember God's commandments and do God's commandments, like Adam and Eve, they were exiled. Because of our sin, we deserve to be eternally exiled from God's presence, His benevolent presence. It's worse than that. Because of our sin against the eternally holy, just, and good God, we deserve to face His eternal wrath against our sin forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is that in love, God purposed to rescue, restore, and redeem, as Psalm 103 says, redeem a people for Himself. God purposed to rescue and restore sinners like you and me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God 
came to earth. Jesus was truly man and truly God. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. He was the one who, according to verse 18, kept God's covenant and remembered to do God's commandments. Jesus never sinned. And yet, having lived a fully obedient life, Jesus gave up his life on the cross so that all of our iniquities might be forgiven and our disease of sin healed. Jesus, he, he died as a substitute for sinners to rescue us from eternal death. But that is not all. For three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death was a perfect sacrifice on behalf of repenting sinners like you and me. Proving to us all that everyone who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him, that they too would be rescued from sin and death. All of those who turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus, praising his name, will be a part of God's restored people in the new heavens and the new earth. So friend, turn from your sins. Become one of those who fear God. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Join the people of God, praising Jesus today and praising Him for all eternity. One of the things that I hope we come to see is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord who rules over all. Jesus is reconciling creatures like you and me to Himself. He is reconciling the whole created order to Himself, the book of Colossians teaches us. And this is why the whole creation is called to praise Him in verses 19 to 22. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point, creation's call to praise. So we've considered David's call to praise, Israel's call to praise, and now we consider creation's call to praise. Take a look there at verses 19 to 22. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty one who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's not enough for one man to praise Yahweh. It is not enough for a whole nation or even people from every tongue and tribe and nation to praise Yahweh. No, the whole creation must give praise to the King of creation. To proclaim in the words of Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so David calls the angels, those who obey His word, who carry His word, and who do the very thing that this psalm has been doing throughout the whole, to bless Yahweh, to praise Yahweh. Here David has in view those supernatural beings that, that God sends forth in various ways, either to execute His will in the world or to extend His word to His people. But this is the first of four commands to praise Yahweh in this section. I wonder, did you know that the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, speaks of the angels longing to look into the things pertaining to salvation? Peter speaks of the angels longing to look into the things that are pertaining to salvation. And the idea, of course, is that believers in Jesus have something of an advantage over angels because we have known and experienced the salvation of God. So Christian, if the angels praise Yahweh, if these messengers who have not known and experienced the saving love of God, then how much more should you praise God for His mercy toward you? 
In verse 21, David announces his second command, the second call for the created order to bless Yahweh. The hosts are called to bless Yahweh. It's kind of hard to know who David is speaking to here. The hosts either refer to Israel's earthly armies or God's heavenly armies or the the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars are sometimes referred to as the heavenly hosts. We know from Psalm uh, 19 verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The ministers in this verse could could even potentially be the, the priestly ministers in Israel who do God's will. We know from the law that the priests in Israel were were chiefly engaged in the worship and praise of God. But in keeping with the the flow of the psalm, the the most likely candidates, I think, are God's heavenly armies or the the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, this expansive view. Whatever the case may be, the praise keeps expanding there in verse 21. All of God's work in all of His places are to bless the Lord. This is simply a a way of encapsulating everything in all creation, a catch-all. so so to speak. Everything and everyone, everywhere, are to bless and praise God with all that they have and are. And the psalm concludes with David showing us the way, right? Concludes, bless the Lord, O my soul. See, he he is a true leader. David shows us how to praise God in verses 1 to 5. Why we should praise God in verses 6 to 18. And who should praise God? In verses 19 to 22, everyone. And as we conclude, we should think practically about our praise of God from day to day. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the privilege of bringing praise to the Lord of all creation. How can you, how can you praise God today and tomorrow, should the Lord Jesus give you life and breath? How can you be involved in the work of bringing others to praise God? Psalm 103 teaches us that you can offer your praise to God today and tomorrow by calling yourself to that praise. Right? This is what David does. He calls himself to praise. Praise must be self-conscious and we can actually supply our souls with material for the praise of God simply by reflecting on His character and His benefits. Psalm 103 teaches us that our God is a forgiving God. That He forgives us of all of our iniquities. Can you praise God for that today? What about tomorrow? Psalm 103 teaches us that our God is merciful and gracious. Psalm 103 teaches us that that our God frees us from oppression of sin and death. Psalm 103 teaches us that our God is compassionate, that He knows our frailty because He made our frame. Psalm 103 teaches us that God's love can never fail because He can never fail. Can you praise God for that today? Or tomorrow? How can we praise God today and tomorrow? I think we can praise God today and tomorrow by taking this psalm in our hands. And by praising God through it and from it. Praying it back to God. Praising Him for the greatness of His mercy, love, and grace. Consider this afternoon picking up Psalm 103 and praising God in prayer back to Him. Use it as the basis of your praise to God. As we've seen from this psalm, it's not enough for individuals or even local congregations to praise the God of all creation. We need to call others into the praise of God because He's worthy of it, isn't He? He's worthy of it. Consider taking an unbelieving friend out to coffee or lunch and ask them how they'll spend their weekend. Chances are, they'll ask you how you're going to spend yours. And you can tell them that part of it, you're going to turn up 
and worship and gather with God's people and praise His name. And in fact, would you, would you like to come along and join me in the praise of God? Consider writing a note to a few friends or family members who, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or love the Lord Jesus Christ and being so bold as to invite them to church. This church or a church that they live near. Invite them into the praise of God. In the very least, pray. Pray every day that God would open doors and conversations and open hearts to the good news of Jesus. Our God is in the pursuit of His praise. And He's called us to join in that pursuit. He has called us to invite others into His praise. And His invitation to us is one of the greatest privileges that we have. It's one of the greatest privileges, if not the greatest privilege in the universe. So accept this call, this invitation with such joy that you just have to share His praise with others. As a Puritan minister once said, the servants of the Lord are to sing praises, sing His praises in this life to the world's end. And in the next life, world without end. Praise God today and every day He gives you for His love and mercy and grace. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.